0: So I had to get a new <laughs> program for editing the audio. Right. Because uh, I updated my OS and Audacity is apparently evil now, so I can't upgrade Audacity. Audacity. Um, so I ended up with, um, I th- what's it called? Uh, Hindenburg is its name. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: it's know not why. ominous at all. Yeah. be careful john i'm a little worried your computer might explode into flames Yeah, you
2: need a fire
1: extinguisher handy
2: it's very reliable and futuristic most of the time okay
0: (laughs) so you have some experience
2: no 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 i'm saying it in relation to the hindenburg right you know i
0: don't like keep it out of (laughs) rainstorms i think is the main thing
2: save often
1: (laughs) (laughs) it could crash yeah, Pinguo can say Oh the humanity uh, She can't actually say
0: that Her vocabulary is much smaller than that
1: For the
2: humanity <laughs> Oh my
3: god
1: Audacity had the audacity to Exclude your OS
3: Yeah Uh huh Welcome to
0: the Trade Waiters. Uh, We have a special guest this episode. Welcome, Hannah Myers.
4: Hey, thanks for having me, you guys. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Uh, Hannah, what's our book today?
4: Um, Our book is The Golden Age by Roxanne Moriel and Cyril Pedrosa. It's a French graphic novel, and so this is an English translation.
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the few bande dessinée that we've done on the Trade Waiters. We haven't done as many.
3: Yeah.
2: It's true. I think we're, I don't know, maybe we don't hear about them as often. So it's really good to know that this was another uh, good import. I'm excited to to talk about it.
0: We usually start with a character building question. Hannah, did you bring a character building question so that we can introduce ourselves?
4: Yeah, I want to know um, what all of your all dream meals are dream meals like a,
1: yeah,
4: a, a, a fantasy of the most fantasy, amazing meal? fantasy
1: meal like is this like a like a delicious in dungeon situation like it's like <laughs> like a like a pickled unicorn or whatever
4: no uh, like it has to be like a real meal
1: <laughs> oh okay like real food but just like, real
4: food but like if you could just like if you're really hungry and like you had a a like a wizard come down and like he could manifest whatever you wanted all
0: right i'm jd and um i have an answer because i haven't had this since the pandemic started i would love some dim sum mm.
4: yes yeah. oh that's all anything
0: anything dim sum based i want that
1: yeah i'm jeff ellis and i'm just gonna say i would i would love to have an one more scandalicious chicken and waffles because scandalicious is no longer in business anymore and oh i won't yeah. have any more
2: <laughs> it's so sad there yeah. is a new waffle place in gastown and i recently went to to sample them and they do do Liege style waffles and some norwegian style waffles but uh i i don't think it's as good as scandalicious but it's
1: nice there's, yeah there's a it's waffle nice. place there's a waffle place near the studio that i've been trying out and like there are indeed waffles and there is indeed chicken but it is not the same
2: not the same not the same yeah I I think to to follow on uh on JD's idea since the pandemic like right before the pandemic hit there was a a place that was going to be opening for Japanese style jiggly pancakes like really thick pancakes and I haven't managed to like get to (laughs) like I and I walked by the the location at Robson which just didn't ever open I think as a result so I'm like ah we were so close to having like awesome Japanese style pancakes and I don't know so that is that is my wish for awesome Japanese style pancakes
4: nice all good answers (laughs) oh and I'm
0: Hannah what's your answer
4: um, okay. Well, I had banana leaf for dinner tonight. So, and I, I love laksa. So I think it might be laksa right now. Cause I'm just like, I'm full of laksa and I want to eat more. <laughs> I wish I had more room for more of it. <laughs> you get need- a little bit of everything like coconutty kind of spicy broth, uh, lemongrass. Oh, so good.
1: You need uh magic laksa that just never fills you.
4: <laughs> yeah. Bottomless laksa. That's my there answer
1: i <laughs> love it
0: We need uh we need streganonia to come here and get this for us <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Strigaloxa>. <laughs> all
0: right uh so hannah can you tell us a little bit about the creators of this
3: book
4: yeah i can tell you a little bit so what i thought was kind of most interesting is the writer roxanne she this is her first graphic novel hmm. uh, she oh, wow. yeah she was born in 1987 and it seems like she's just been like a fan of graphic novels. Um, she's, a, I guess she's, she was a bookseller for a really long time. And then she became a member of Maison Fumetti. I don't know if you guys heard of that, but it sounds like it's the French version of Cloudscape Comics. It's a like comic and graphic arts collective where they have like free workshops and stuff like that. Oh, that was really cool. And I have a feeling, I'm suspicious, that's where she met the artist, um, Cyril Pedrosa. So he is a, um, also a French comic artist, uh, also an animator, uh, born in 1975. Um, he actually worked for Walt Disney Animation in France, and he did sketch work for Hunchback of Notre Dame, and he did work on Hercules. And he's also published uh, quite a few graphic novels. Uh, The last most recent ones he's published have earned awards. So this one has earned two awards in France. So that's... I learned, I think, yeah. Yeah, those are the the people behind the book.
0: And this is uh, book one of two. Do we know if it's only going to be two?
4: I don't know if there's only going to be two, but I do know that the second one is coming out at the end of the month, October 26th, so something to look forward to
1: I think I think we might be having you back to review book two
4: that's what my suggestion was I was like we'll do the the first one then you'll have me back for the second
1: yeah
0: like this is I think this will be the first time we've done two episodes on a series where we haven't read the second one but we're recording about the first one so Mm -hmm. this one kind of ends on a cliffhanger and like I don't know what's gonna happen next we have to wait like yeah. all of us are in the dark at this point.
2: And we are true train waiters now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like a lot is gonna hinge on the second book because I like really enjoyed the journey of this book, but like everything's hanging in the air. And I just kind of need to know if anything like all these things are gonna pay off. Like that's I'm kind of like I'm, I, I want everything to pay off, but I like, don't know. I won't know until book two.
2: <laughs> uh, I will say that I really enjoyed it overall, though. Uh, I came into this work cold. I hadn't heard of it until it was suggested. Uh, so thank you for, for bringing it to my attention because, yeah, I, I, I opened it. And uh, I think Bonne Destinie are really remarkable in their variety because I, I hadn't clued in until you just told me that it was a French comic. Uh, I thought it was uh, a really interesting indie comic so I mean that that also speaks to the quality of translation, right you know it's a, I, I thought the the voices in the book were done you know very they felt very contemporary the translation felt seamless uh, for for me uh, yeah and I was I found the book really engrossing and really relevant like surprisingly relevant which we can we can talk to uh, in a few minutes but uh, overall I really liked it.
0: Yeah, this was great. Uh, Like, at the start, like, obviously, the art is amazing. So uh, at that at the start, I wasn't really too concerned about whether or not the story was going to go anywhere. I was just like, wow, this is such great art. This is such great use of color and paneling and uh, character design. Uh, And at the at first, it seemed like it was just kind of a typical like, Disney esque, the wrong monarch has the throne and the the one that we like needs to win uh and then it really changed and it's like oh it's not that at all and then i was really invested in like okay i want to see what's going to happen here because like uh i wouldn't consider myself to be any kind of expert on the hi- like medieval history but there are a lot of things that went on in the middle ages that i think most people aren't aware of it wasn't just it, it didn't play out like a Disney movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. Like it has a bit of that Disney aesthetic because the artist was involved in some Disney projects, but um, yeah, the story content wise, I don't think it feels Disney at all. I, I, I jam, I was in a similar situation to you though. I read this and I was about halfway through and it was bugging me. I was like, wait, where, where is this from? And I like flipped the book over and I read the artist bios and then I was like, oh, it's a dessine. like ah oh, I didn't <laughs> like I just assumed it was an indie book as well. so yeah, it's I think it, yeah, it's kind of exciting to just see like where like the European comics you know are are at these days. Yeah, the art is breathtaking, like a hundred percent.
4: The art is amazing. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to pick this book um, because it's really, I've never seen anything like it. Like the colors are really wild and so unexpected. I find the palettes and often there isn't a lot of contrast which kind of like, I feel like draws your eyes in quite a bit. And then also the character design is really interesting. It's really easy to tell like people apart. And you can tell what type of character they are, I feel like, just by what they look like in a lot of instances. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm a big fan. I read this book like a year and a half ago or so, so I was already a big fan of it. Yeah, if I could compare it to anything, uh, the
2: closest thing that I could, I could think of that reminds me of the use of color in this book would be meat and Bone. By Cat, uh, oh. where like there's a lot of very strong color choices, very atmospheric color choices that change by scene. And I don't know who pioneered it or whatever. I don't know which, what, where, where Cat or where uh, this artist gets their influence from. Probably different sources, but I I think it is very innovative, both of them, and uh, it really does help draw you into this world long-time listeners will know that i'm not the quickest fan of historical comics uh and one of the reasons why i find historical comics to be quite off-putting is because i had it just kind of when it when trying to depict something like the medieval era i think the color palette that's usually chosen is kind of muddy and bleak right and so this does a good job of really drawing you in but it doesn't feel like an improper representation, like the drawings and the the setting and the characters and how they're interacting does feel authentic to a modern viewer, I guess. Uh, I'm never the one who's going for authenticity though. So I'll let <laughs> someone who cares about history to speak to that. So uh, just despite it being a historical piece, I, really, I think the colors is one of the things and the beautiful art that helped uh, bring me along.
0: Yeah, and I think the, the, the part that makes it feel modern is the way the characters interact with each other, which that feels like that's the most important part to make relatable because people in the middle ages were still people. And maybe the the sentences they put together would be different grammar or whatever, but uh, like the emotions are the same. And I think you get yeah. to those emotions better if you just like have them talk like people. Hmm. And yeah, the, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a essentially a fantasy story uh, in the sense that the kingdom is not a real place. Um, oh. But I mean, they make reference to real things. Like uh, they have nuns, they have uh, Christianity, they have classical ruins. So it's at least like analogous to the actual Middle Ages, but then it also f- sort of frees them up to not have to have like a historically accurate account of a real person and what they actually did which may or may not work out to be a good story
2: yeah but it definitely does free the possibilities of the plot you know it's like you open up a book of the titanic and you're like i don't know where this is gonna go you (laughs) guys but uh so I, i find it exciting and engaging in that way
1: yeah and uh yeah i mean just for the um translations too like when they enter the story and it's like the peasants uh, kind of having a conversation in the woods. Like, I think I found myself assuming that this was gonna be like in England and that they all had these like British accents. And then uh, I realized that I was just putting that in my own head. And like, then when I realized it was like a bon dessinée, then I was like really trying to think about it in terms of being more of like a French medieval period. But I mean, yeah, like it, it, it it sort of has like a nice universal feel. Like you could kind of plug in any accent and it would, it would still read fine, you know? Like, uh, And yeah, the colors are 100% super modern. Like I've been in my own personal work really trying to get down to like minimal palettes and go with these bright colors. And I just really enjoy seeing this in other people's work. This feels very... I don't know, modern and cutting edge in terms of like its approach to color yeah really nice stuff
0: yeah and Hannah mentioned the, the sort of low contrast uh there are a lot of pages that are very dark and have like the color distinctions are like it's not a great it's not a, a wide range of of color so I mean it, it works really well in print that's a hard thing to do to like create a page digitally, especially a dark page, and know that it'll work in print on paper. Uh, My only advice is don't read this book in the dark because you're going to miss things.
4: (laughs) I I didn't confirm. I read it in the dark last night and I was, uh, I had to move (laughs) into a (laughs) more well-lit room. (laughs) I read it on my tablet and that worked out just fine.
0: Okay. Uh, do we want to summarize the, the plot? I can do that. <laughs> sure. Uh, okay, so at the start, like our, our entry into the story are these three peasants who are sort of starving in the woods just to give us sort of context. Uh, they show up occasionally, but they're not really the main characters at all. The most important character is uh, Princess Tilda, who... Like her father has just passed away and she was supposed to inherit the throne. Uh, She has a younger brother, but so but she's expecting to to be the the queen. Uh, And so she's meeting with all the other noblemen and hangers-on and all the people in the palace. And you can start to see kind of like political stuff, like political theater going on. Uh, And then her brother basically does a coup and packs her off to some other part of the country so that he can be king with the help of their mother, uh, which was obviously a little upsetting uh, for, for Childa. And then on the way to wherever they're going, they are attacked by, uh, let's see, who is this here? Was it bandits?
1: I, I, read, it, I read it as... Uh, assassins sent by her uh, mother and, and brother. Okay, maybe it
0: was kind of unclear, because I can't remember now. We never really get a good sense of who these people are. Yeah. So it could but be they assassins. Wondered,
4: they were exiling her, right? And yeah. They were taking her off, and then her buddies help her escape, and I was under the impression that they were just chasing after them the whole Probably the majority of that,
0: right? That would make sense.
1: Yeah, I guess maybe not assassins, but just like yeah, I felt like the the usurpers, the the like faceless riders that are like the the like unknown riders that are chasing her. I think are just all agents of her brother. It's kind of my read on it.
0: Yeah, they they want this to happen on the road so that he won't take any any blame for it, Mm -hmm. assumedly. Uh, So she escapes with uh, this formerly disgraced nobleman whose name is Tancred who seems like a, an honorable sort uh and he is he has a ward named Bertle, who is about Tilda's age I think they grew up together until uh, Tancred was banished by her father uh or not by her father by the um whoever was like well I forget like what that
2: prime minister or something you yeah know, like... yeah
0: or vizier or something,
2: (laughs) something like that.
0: So anyways, uh, the, the three of them escape into the woods and they are taken in by a mysterious group of women who all live in a village with no men and, uh, are training themselves how to fight. And they all share everything equally and they have a lot of secrets and none of them ever talk about any of their backgrounds there's one nun in particular who is, spends all her time in the library uh, in search of a book called The Golden Age. Eventually, they, the village is attacked by outsiders and the mysterious nun from the library uh, leaves. is forced to leave the city. Uh, and Tilda, Tancred and Bertle also leave and they continue on their journey trying to find uh, a safe place to be while Tilda plots retaking the kingdom. Uh, they're not very successful, though. The, the one person that they think they have the, they're going to have the best luck with isn't in a very good state and doesn't have any supporters or um, soldiers because the peasants have been revolting. And then they end up finally in uh, a city that her father had left her a message about uh, a great treasure. Uh, And so when she got that message, she went to the city to try and get this treasure on the assumption that this will help her somehow retake the throne. Uh, When they get there, the the city in question has already been taken over by the peasants. So the peasant revolt has succeeded here. Uh, And then, spoiler, uh, the nun turns out to be the uh, leader of this rebellion, and his name is Helier. And they try to get to this treasure and they get there only to be, only to see that her brother and mother have made it there at the same time because a spy told them where they were. And they go to the, the treasure and they try to open it. And then the magical things start to happen, but we never find out more more beyond that, because that's the end of the book.
1: A magical explosion, which, yeah, that's one of the things where you're like, what happened? (laughs) No. Yeah,
2: and it's interesting. It does seem to point that, like, something supernatural is going on, uh, which will be interesting to, I think, book, book one so far seemed to be very grounded in reality. There weren't uh, a lot of supernatural things happening. So it will be interesting to see what kind of supernatural things come in and to what extent do they affect the world? You know, I said, oh, we're gonna make a deal with the Fae Queen. You know, we don't know. So,
3: <laughs>
1: thing, um, Something you didn't mention in your summary was that Tilda has been having like blackouts and uh, her hands start to change color. And uh, I guess
2: that is pretty supernatural, yeah.
1: Having some, like, physical changes that seem to be connected to this treasure.
0: Yeah, I guess I would say we don't really know for sure that it's supernatural until, like, we know that there are supernatural things possible in this world. It could be, like, metaphorical or something.
2: It's funny, like, before I kind of affirmed to myself that this wasn't anything based in history, I thought that this might have been a retelling of Joan of Arc. And Mm. so, like, I I interpreted kind of those blackouts as, like, visions that then got kind of Christianified and this person, this, this princess becomes Joan of Arc, but Joan of Arc wasn't royal, I don't think.
1: No. I mean, I could see maybe some Joan of Arc influence in Tilda's story, though. I wouldn't be surprised if they borrow a little bit from that. But, yeah, I really want to know where like where the hellier character is gonna end up next book because uh that was a real I don't know that was a real twist uh when the nun is revealed to be a man who is secretly infiltrating this compound to use the library and then or was a- allowed to infiltrate. Yeah. It does
2: seem pretty clear that like at least the the head of the that's right. sisterhood understands the context of what's going on
1: yeah and then hellyer's the leader of this like peasant uprising and i don't know it's that's when things really i wasn't sure what was going to happen because i mean there was definitely a theme in this book about equality and i really enjoyed this that the myth of the golden age is like it was a time when there weren't peasants under the thumb of lords and we could return to that golden age but then you also have Tilda trying to become the queen to like save her people. And I'm like, those are kind of at odds with each other. <laughs> you know, this peasant revolt. I don't, know, maybe this is just like where I'm at with my politics, but just like, I'm just like, go peasant revolt. You don't need a queen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it feels like that's where the authors intend for, intend to lead us to like, there seems to be sort of possibly evil magic at work or something like Whatever, whatever's going on with Tilda, uh, it's not good, and it's tied to her ambition to be queen.
2: Yeah, it feels like a corrupting force, and uh, I, you're you're absolutely right. It feels like a normal, or sorry, it feels like a subversion of the normal medieval style mythos of like like we described earlier. It it starts out very classically with like a person who is heir to the throne, but then gets usurped and. Uh, there's some political drama here, but very quickly, uh, and I would say, like from the outset, because we start with the point of view of these peasants, who are very deliberately humanized to us. You know, like although there are some gags in the way that they're interacting, and I think that type of like that type of character is usually just played for laughs. Like, look how dirty and irrelevant these peasants are, and certainly they're in a rough state. But I think they're actually very sympathetic. I really enjoyed reading about these peasants in the beginning and I thought like oh isn't this a really interesting perspective to start uh, a medieval book and so to start with them and then to return to them later and kind of be rooting for them like yeah it clearly it clearly sucks (laughs) (laughs) a lot of the time and they're just trying to get by so uh if the royalty is not going great for them maybe yeah I'm also team peasant revolt
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no I, I really loved all the stuff about the the peasant revolt, because there were peasant revolts in the middle ages. Like, like I said, I don't know the history well enough to be able to t- tell you which incidents there were, but there was like a lot of them. It was a regular thing. Like uh, Steve LeCouliard quote had an actual quote in, in his book, uh, much the Miller's son, but he like, he found something that, uh, I don't know, a, a monk or someone had written in the middle ages which is very similar to the the golden age text in this book uh just sort of a a treatise i guess on why are there monarchs why is there nobility like this is not the natural state of affairs there were no monarchs in the garden of eden and so steve put that in his book as like evidence of like uh peasants resisting feudalism uh, because it was a real thing because this is a thing that happened. And it just never makes it into popular culture. We only get the stories from the points of view of the, the disgraced monarchs who need to get their thrones back.
2: With the exception, perhaps, of Robin Hood.
0: Even, like, I don't know if the, I haven't read the original Robin Hood uh, and to know whether he's a um, disgraced monarch in that, but at least in the movie versions I've seen, he's a disgraced monarch. Yeah. like hides out in the woods and then needs to get his get back into power
2: yeah it's uh i think that's one of those stories where if you go back to the original mythos i think i think he is a disgraced monarch but then certain versions of the retellings he becomes more like folk hero-esque
3: sure. yeah so, that's true
2: yeah and so yeah there's a, there's a difference between history and the the contemporary broken telephone version of history Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's interesting what do you all think the golden age refers to what age or location is that supposed to be
0: i feel like it's kind of a placeholder for a garden of eden type scenario like a mythic past where like this is the origin of humanity and everything was fine and good and then something went wrong
4: i do not get that sense
0: Hmm. i guess i I, I think my the reason i come to that is probably because I know that quote that Mm. uh, isn't in this book, but is in Steve's book. So maybe I'm like, maybe I'm putting my own knowledge into this and it's not necessarily something that's in the book.
4: Hannah, you were going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say that like the way that they talk about the golden age kind of sort of like, not like they, they talk about it originally as if, It's not real, you know, and like they don't believe that it was a thing. So that's sort of what made me think it was. It's not just a time when there were no like lords. There were, you know, it's more like it doesn't it doesn't seem like real. It seems like fantastical. So that's what made me think that there was something else going on. Yeah, I got the sense that it was like
2: the Dark Ages are after the Middle Ages.
0: No, before the dark ages are between the Roman empire and the quote unquote middle ages, although whether how dark they actually were is debatable.
3: Right.
2: So I got the sense that it was some pre dark age society and like the golden age. And again, this might be my impression where it was like a version of society and this like social technology was lost Mm. in the dark age. So either it was a, a community and it, for me, like it's really interesting to have this community of women, like in the middle of this book inexplicably and doesn't really go much into like, where did they come from? Where are they, what are their goals? But you know, they seem to be doing okay. You know, <laughs> despite having no men, it does seem like everyone is sharing the work there and they're they're getting by. Uh, certainly a lot better than the peasants that we encounter. So I thought that that was interesting in in relation. And why do they have the text on the golden age?
0: That's true. Yeah. Like to support that view, the the place that they find the treasure is uh, like the ruins of a classical city, which like, I mean, the immediate connection is, oh, this must be Roman, but maybe it's not, maybe it's like, uh, some other classical society that was much more fair than roman society because the romans had nobles like they did have like a feudal system but we don't know that these are this these ruins are roman They could be something else
2: yeah like there's uh the bronze age as well Mm
0: -hmm. or the the etruscans were apparently apparently the romans really didn't like the etruscans views on gender (laughs) which I think speaks very highly of the
4: Etruscans.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of other societies like that, that even from our perspective are not as well understood. And there's lots of societies in Africa that are, we're very successful. And so, yeah, we don't know, we don't know what the author intent was at this, at this stage, but I think there's, uh, I I'd say a lot of these perspectives at this point are all valid. Like they're all, yeah, they're all I, on the table. Nothing really discredits any of them.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I, I took a very much more simplistic view of it. And I think maybe it's just cause I I recently read a book all about like the origin of human civilization. And so I just sort of saw like the idea of the golden age as before somebody made up the concept of wealth and declared themselves a lord and made me an indentured servant, that time period before that was the golden age because (laughs) everybody (laughs) shared everything. (laughs) It was just a great time because nobody said they were in charge. (laughs) Yeah,
2: it's interesting. It's interesting that we all came with uh, different perspectives on the meaning of this book. I mean, it just goes to show that so much of it is left open to interpretation, and in, in an interesting way.
1: Yeah. What? Um. So you're. I mean, you. I think you just read this
4: last night, Hannah. No, I read it for the first time like a year ago, and uh, but then I did reread it. I. Sorry, sorry. I should this... have,
1: I should have said reread. Sorry, you reread yeah. this last night. Sorry.
4: Yes, because I had kind of forgotten everything (laughs) I remembered that it was really good and that I really enjoyed it yeah I just uh am blown away by it I think that also like there's so many different characters that they run into along the way that are really interesting like there's this sort of weird like bounty hunter guy that they meet up with that like takes them through the woods and to where they're going um, there's quite a few little twists um, that keeps you on your toes. Like, spoiler alert, the bounty hunter actually tur- has turned on them and was a spy of uh, her her mother's. And also, like, kind of, I felt like there was a couple maybe, like, Game of Thronesy kind of references. Like, her younger brother is very much a Joffrey, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah I just thought it was sort of there's like kind of uh, quite a few little um, like references to all these different sort of medieval stories and it sort of makes up this really like colorful and vibrant uh, world. And
1: I I will second Hannah I really liked uh, Old Wobbly that was uh, a really good character and uh, the big (laughs) that the turn There's at the end was such
4: a good sense of humor. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, I I I enjoyed him as a character quite a bit. Though I think like once they took him on and he keeps asking for money for everything that he does, I'm like, oh, he's going to turn on them on a dime. Like the next person <laughs> with a bag of money, that's it.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I guess I would have fallen for old Wally because I did not see that coming. <laughs>
3: Probably, he's, I thought we were pals. <laughs> he's very
4: charming. <laughs> he was, in my opinion, I felt for sure he's up to something. He's not 100% honest for sure, but I was definitely not expecting for him to have been basically a plant and for him to be fo- like following them and taking them uh, to where they wanted to go, but also telling Uh, her mother um the i guess she's the queen now kind of really because i mean her brother Mm -hmm. who knows what he's even doing yeah yeah so i just wasn't expecting the betrayal to go that deep (laughs) and yeah fair enough fair enough
1: i think like a milder betrayal was when bertil uh decided not to get on the boat and uh stayed behind to help the the peasants with their their uprising
2: i thought that was a very cool twist yeah, yeah. i think it, it that was a betrayal that speaks very much to the themes of yeah. like hey just because you're like a squire or whatever why are you in favor of the monarch like if you're actually believing in this golden age stuff you need to be team peasant ruled mm-hmm. and uh this is a, a character that serves that thesis very well yeah
0: yeah especially because Tilda's not doing that like she had the opportunity uh to side with the peasants and then declined on it
4: and you can really tell too that it's really affected her a lot because it seems like they sort of been setting up a bit of a romantic relationship between them Mm
3: -hmm. like there's
4: one at one point like he he's cuddling her in in bed um i think that's as far as it goes but you i mean i got the the feeling that they, there was sort of something going on between them they he seemed to care a lot about her but so I think that that setup really made it seem in insane that he not insane but like he really feels a lot for these you know for what he believes in enough to completely abandon this person that he seemed to care a lot about yeah and his mentor no less exactly it's uh
2: yeah it's interesting i hope that we guys will reconnect with that character in the in the second volume Mm -hmm. i think well i mean it's they're set up to be pretty important so i look forward to it yeah i want to see how the peasant revolt goes i mean it sounds (laughs) like it's been successful in some other quadrants uh but maybe like as we reconnect with the original peasants from the beginning of the book their their revolt slash migration didn't seem to pan out so well
0: yeah no i mean this is where it's helpful that it's not a historical uh historical fiction because we know none of the peasant revolts in real life worked out but i mean maybe this one will it's possible yeah that's, that's if you're in a peasant revolt you don't know if you're in the one that will work the many 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 that don't
2: Just because they don't fully disrupt the system doesn't mean that they weren't necessarily successful or
0: important. That's true. I'm sure every peasant revolt uh, inspired the one that came after, leading eventually to the French Revolution.
1: (laughs) The greatest peasant revolt of all. (laughs) And I mean, I don't know. I mean, sometimes peasant revolts can be good because then the people in charge are like, oh, we better do something nice for everyone. They're going to (laughs) revolt.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I was just flipping through the book here and I noticed that um, something I hadn't noticed the first time through that Tilda's father on his deathbed, like after he's died, he's got the same splotchy skin that she starts to get as she has her turn to wanting to to take the throne.
1: Oh, I had also overlooked that.
0: So whatever this curse is, it's generational, I think.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Again, I really want to know. I, well, yeah, we're definitely gonna have to cover volume two because I need to know all the answers.
4: Um, Do we have any um, speculation on uh, on what what that's about? Ooh, good question. I, I'm I'm I've got an idea. I've got a thought. Oh, please share. Well, I mean, if the the box that they are that they're after here. I feel like it's it's definitely representing a secret, a truth of the Golden age itself. And if the Golden Age is a time where there were no rulers, um, there were no there were no one in, there was no one in charge um, and everyone was equal. I wonder if that is why it has killed the king. And maybe that is why it's injuring Tilda. Ooh. Yeah. Just a thought. Maybe it's actually like meant to destroy the monarchy. I mean, the last couple
1: pages would fit with that. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, all the royal people are uh, lying on their backs, <laughs> mm-hmm. on their fronts. <laughs>
0: All right, I'm going to go with uh, my theory is that uh, the Golden Age will pan out to not be as advertised, to not be a good, better place, and that all along the Peasant Peasant Rebellion was the real Golden Age the whole time.
1: Ooh.
2: My theory is that this village of women knows more than they let on.
1: Ah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the golden age was in their hearts the whole time. The golden age <laughs> oh, was the, the friends hell? we made, all, the friends of Wobbly we made along the way. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh my
0: God. All right, we don't have a huge amount of time left, but uh, do we want to talk again, maybe about the color? Because like the color is so good.
1: I, I mean, the color is amazing. Actually, okay, I have a little nitpick and I wouldn't mind your thoughts on this. So I noticed throughout this book that the artist really liked to go for, like they would do these big scenes with like two characters on a horse or three characters on a horse. And you would, it would draw them over and over again as they progressed through the landscape. And then they'd have the speech balloons sort of following the conversation. And I felt like that worked really well as these two page spreads. But then I noticed that creeping into some of the panels where like, you know, Tilda's like walking across the room, talking to someone, and then you have like five Tilda drawings with five speech balloons. And I don't know, I felt like it was a little excessive at times. I would have liked, I thought maybe that like the big vistas worked, but I thought for some of the the more intimate moments, maybe just framing off some specific panels as opposed to, it felt very like an animator, trying to make comics and not an not someone who is really crap like versed in telling stories with pictures only it felt like an animator adapting to a comic style as opposed to like a comic artist who's really picking their moments. That's
2: really huh. interesting. Thank you for reminding me of that because it is something that I picked up on and it is one of the reasons why I think I thought this was an indie comic mm. because the trope or the, the mechanism that you're mentioning is something that I have been seeing more often show up in indie comics.
3: Mm. Uh,
2: sometimes it can be like a series of faces and sometimes it it depicts like yeah like a range of motion and what it means to me is uh, if you think back to Scott McLeod and his his theories on how panel shape communicates like time and time rate of time passing right
1: right right
2: when you condense this many figures within one panel it makes it feel like almost all of these things are happening simultaneously or like in such a short period of time that if you were to break it up it would disrupt the pacing in a certain way so I can definitely see why you think it is an animator shorthand but actually I think it is I see it as the comics medium in its current evolutionary state Hmm. so it's it is interesting and I I don't know how prevalent it's gonna be. It'll be really interesting to watch whether this becomes more widespread uh, or whether it starts to show up in other places and how the reader interprets it, which I think is gonna be a really important part to whether it, uh, it sticks around. Uh, if you'd like to see this in action, I, I think a, an artist that's currently doing an amazing amount of work with this trope specifically, uh, Pseudonym Jones her comics are incredible and really experimental in terms of pacing. But when she draws it, it, it always seems really clear what's happening. And I think in this instance, it's maybe not a hundred percent executed in terms of clarity.
0: Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the panels with more than one person in it, uh, I didn't get tripped up by those at all, but there were some of the bigger vistas with multiple versions of the characters, where I lost track of where, where to go next. And I think it wasn't so much the, because the ones where it's like people on a path, you, it's like pretty intuitive to just follow the path, but there were some other pages where like the panels were kind of like mushed together and didn't always work for me. Like sometimes I had to like go back and reread to catch up to where I was.
4: I agree. Interesting to, to me that you guys have an issue with that because I that's one of the things I really like about it. <laughs> um, there's a couple of spreads. There's one in particular that I'm looking at actually right now where they're just entering like the the city walls of this uh, this compound and so at the very the, the left side everyone's drawn really small and it's the entrance way and as you go up the stairs and through you can kind of see like the village, um, different areas opening up. Um, and it just, I love being able to like soak in all that detail and, uh, uh, you know, sort of take it, take it as it comes. And it, I don't think that the narr- narration sort of, um, uh, it matters necessarily what direction you read it in it, for a lot of these ones. Um, it's not, to me, it doesn't ever really seem anything like that super important. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I really enjoy those, those big spread pages. Yeah, That I mean-
2: spread that you're indicating is, is
4: definitely one of the ones where I thought it was done
2: really, really well. There's a lot of advantages in that one. Uh, you get this like beautiful two-page spread of something like a, a castle. And from a reader's perspective, it allows you to take the whole thing in at once. And if you could imagine breaking that down into panels, we would never get a complete view. Of the castle mm-hmm. so it's it's really well utilized there i think
1: yeah i mean i yeah i want to clarify like i mean um i've definitely like read some will eisner comics that don't have panel borders and he you know like there is something to be said for expressing the the sequence of events within a larger drawing and those like like i think it was like one i think it's 176 177 that spread like 100 percent those big like vistas that just are like bleeding off the edge of the page and you have the small figures getting bigger. I think that is really effective. It's more like moments like, I don't know, it's kind of like on page one Oh two there's squires like walking up the stairs. And like, I think I get, I felt like it was more like he should be creeping up the stairs slowly, but it's sort of presented as this one panel with like multiple figures and it speeds it up Mm. and I feel like it it loses some of the like having those panel breaks would slow the time down and give you that creeping up the stairs um feeling a little more so I feel like I liked it in the big two-page spreads I just felt like in some of the smaller panels it was maybe overused in those instances
0: like looking at that page uh I think Uh, Because we have the same in the top two panels as well, where he's like, there's multiple images of him sneaking around. But I think the top two panels, at least for me, work better because there are speech balloons to slow down the time. Whereas in the third panel, it's just him going up a staircase and like without those speech balloons. Yeah, it feels like this is like the, the time part gets weird there.
1: Yeah, like it, it definitely like it works. Sometimes it just doesn't work all the time. Um, And that's where I just I feel like maybe because it's used so often, I feel like maybe the artist sort of this is something that has sort of fallen into the repertoire. And it's like maybe some of those panels could have used some exploration of like alternatives. But like, again, those two page spreads are I wouldn't change any of those. Those are all beautiful. Yeah. yeah.
2: And that's why to me, it feels still like a mechanism that's an exploration or sorry, it's an evolution, right? You know, it's, uh, it's at its stage where, uh, different artists are trying this mechanism in different situations and sometimes it's working and sometimes it's not.
1: Yeah. I mean, thanks for the recommendation of uh, pseudonym Jones too. I'm definitely going to be d- looking into that
2: pseudonym Jones rules.
0: Uh, we are out of time. Uh, any, I guess we don't need to do final thoughts because we're going to do a second episode. Maybe, should we do shout outs?
2: So uh, I have a shout out. Uh, first of all, shout out again to Sunin Jones. Uh, you can find her work most reliably on Twitter. And, uh, but I came prepared with a different shout out. Uh, so one of the, what, one of the the main avatars of the the current peasant revolt is the, this is fine dog and uh, which is actually Question Hound by Casey Green. And so I've encountered a lot of people who don't know Casey Green's work. And I've been reading uh, He is a Good Boy, which is a fairly large graphic novel by Casey Green. And I think it is a really fantastic way to delve deeper into Casey Green's work. Uh, I think he is one of the most expressive cartoonists working today, and it is very, visceral and very crude at times but it definitely is a a love letter to the type of animation like old school cartoons that Casey has obviously studied really really deeply and there are some fantastic and mind-blowing drawings uh, in uh, He is a Good Boy.
0: All right uh, I'm gonna shout out uh, I didn't have this prepared but as you were Doing this episode, I thought, okay, I need to talk. I need to shout out this. Uh, it's a, I think it was originally a radio show. Uh, it's available to listen to online though on the BBC. Uh, it's called A History of Debt: The Origin of Money uh, by David Graeber, uh, and certainly gave me some revolutionary ideas about the Middle Ages. Uh, it's not just about the Middle Ages; it's more sort of like the whole history of money and what it is uh but yeah it was uh it was a really good sort of entry point to maybe history is more complicated and not exactly what we think it is
1: all right well i'm jeff ellis and i'm gonna shout out a book book that i read it's called the guest list by lucy foley and it's like a murder mystery that is uh, told through uh, different chapters that are point of view characters. And yeah, it was just a really fun, well-crafted little book. If you're going on a, I don't know, if you're actually getting out and going on a trip in the world, it's a nice book to bring along.
4: Uh, Yeah. I am currently reading and wanting to shout out uh, the rage of dragons by Evan winter. Uh, Evan winter is a Canadian uh, fantasy author and the Rage of Dragons is about sort of like coming of age as a warrior in a very Game of Thronesy kind of world. So it's been- uh, and Hannah,
0: where can we find you on the internet because uh, you are our guest and people might not know who you are.
4: Oh, yeah. Um, I'm an artist in Vancouver. Comic artist, paint maker, and ceramic artist now. (laughs) Thank you, uh, COVID-19, for giving me a lot of extra spare time. Uh, You (laughs) can find me on my website, hannahloumyers.com, or I'm mostly on Instagram at hananabread, which is like banana bread, but with an H. Uh, The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts.